Okay, got it. Welcome back to a new way where we're finding new ways to balance our emotional well-being and take the power back. Today, I have a very special guest and I'm very excited. Will Hall has been advocating for reform and transformation of the mental health system for a very long time. I don't know how many years, but we'll get into that. He is an international speaker and trainer, counsellor, writer and teacher. Will is recognised internationally as an innovator in the treatment and social response to psychosis. He himself was diagnosed with schizophrenia and talks about this and many other things on Madness Radio, which can be found on Spotify podcasts. And I'm obsessed with that, by the way. Will, welcome and thank you so much for agreeing to come on and speak to me. I'm not going to lie, I'm a little bit starstruck. <laughs> thank you, thank you, Claire. I, I really appreciate the uh, the invitation, and it's always it's always great to be interviewed and to meet and talk and visit with folks um, uh, from Ireland. That's always a great honor. Uh, one of my favorite places, so I'm really glad to be here. So you've been here a few times, haven't you? Yeah, over, over the years, I mean, I, I'm very uh, lucky and privileged. I get invited. I've done some traveling. So I've probably been in Ireland like three or four times. Okay. Um, one of my colleagues, Susan McKeown, who was um, interviewed on Madness Radio, she invited me. She's a musician, and I just toured around with her a little bit and did some talking about mental health on the tour. It was a kind of a charity thing we did together mm. years ago. And Okay. I'll have to check it out. I'll have to... So what does she works with you and she's based here in Ireland? Um, she's based in Ireland and the US and she's somebody who uh, you can listen to her story on Madness Radio, but she had a family member who was diagnosed and got into the psych system. And then we found out about that. Um, we found out about each other through that. She was looking for um, places to do charitable work that were not just pro pharmaceuticals, pushing drugs, Okay. It's a disease. Follow your doctor, and that's how we found each other, and that's she started okay. to be interested in supporting that work. So, so yeah, I, I feel like um, you and I have this kind of shared history together, um, even though we've never met. But your mother mm -hmm. is of mixed race, Choctaw Indian descent, mm -hmm. and the Choctaw Nation and Ireland have a very special relationship. So, yeah. for people that don't know. Their relationship began in 1847 when they were both, um, you know, colonized by outside powers um, with the forced removal of their mother tongues and countless deaths. And when word got to the Choctaw people about the famine in Ireland, they gathered up a donation and collected, I think it was five, it would be 5,000 in, you know, today's money um, and to support the Irish during the famine. Um, which is just incredible. And uh, the donation was sent to Middleton, um, which is here in Cork, where I am. Um, and yeah, I just think that's that's so great to have that shared kind of history. And I suppose I wanted to ask you if you feel like, um, you know, collective and intergenerational trauma that would have affected our ancestors um, through the generations. Do you think that has had a deep impact in our brains and, you know, to what extent? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think it's a great question. I think it's possible. Like generally the way that I um, try and uh, respond and work with uh, mental health issues is to really listen deeply to the person. And what humans do is we make meaning. We live inside of stories. We have identities. We have a sense of a role that we play. We have a certain history. We have a, an understanding of ourselves that's a story or a narrative. And so um, I'm very supportive of people finding the narrative that makes sense for them. And yeah, a lot of people um, find it very powerful to start to um, create a, a, a map of their mental health struggles within the context of their family's mental health struggles, their, their parents their grandparents and going all the way back if they're if they were institutionalized or there's foster care maybe connecting it with the, um, the institution that they were part of and the different conflicts and it's quite um it's quite uh, revealing mm -hmm. when you put your own struggles in the context of your ancestral struggles and there is um 
research now coming out. When I was a kid, we were taught that, you know, genes are kind of this like this blueprint that you're born with in your cells. And then the environment comes in, but it's really the blueprint that is running the show biologically. And your experiences can't change the blueprint, only like mutations and these evolutionary processes like a selective uh, natural selection and survival of the fittest um, sort of choose which blueprint is going to succeed. Um, and then the mutations come and there are different differences that result from the mutations. But actually what a lot of evolutionary biologists are discovering now is that um, our environment affects our genes mm. and our genes can be turned on or turned off by the environment. So you start with this nature nurture division, but now it's starting to get a little bit blurry. So there is a lot of evidence that people do carry down physiological traces of traumatic events that they didn't themselves experience that, that could be multiple generations yeah. um, past. And this is, this is consistent with um, what we know about healing around the world, because um, historically, when people are doing healing, first of all, they're doing it in spiritual context, but they're also doing it really in relationship to the ancestors, they're doing it in relationship to the history. They're doing it in the sense of like, I'm not, I'm not just me, I carry a lineage back. And I think that that's looking and learning from that way of understanding is very instructive for how so in the way I look at it, I, I really try and learn about people, listening to them. And then if it makes sense for them, it's, if it's empowering for them, if it's useful, if it's practical for them to think in terms of their ancestors, then great. Um, if not, then okay, that's not, that's not a pathway that makes sense for you. A lot of, a lot of us who hear voices, um, which is one of the main reasons I was diagnosed with schizophrenia, a lot of us who hear voices, and I still hear voices, um, find that we're hearing the voices of our ancestors that we feel that we're hearing. And when you think about that, I mean, it's not necessarily um, uh, a pleasant thing. There could be very distressed ancestors. There could be demanding ancestors. There could be grieving ancestors. There could be all this unfinished business, you could say, with the contemporary generation. And so that can feel very heavy um a lot of times people feel relieved when they think oh wow you know maybe one of the reasons that i have chronic depression has to do with this history that i have and it's not like a genetic causality it's not like i have a disease that's passed down like sickle cell anemia or something but it's more like um uh, stories it's more like experiences it's more like emotions that are carried because then you can say well and I have this task ahead of me, and it's not just to heal myself, but I'm actually finishing the business of uh, my ancestors. I'm actually helping my ancestors and uh, maybe also helping some of my living relatives. Um, so it's always very interesting for me to look at my, my Choctaw ancestry, my Scottish ancestry, my Germanic ancestry, and to think about the kinds of struggles and the kinds of dreams and hopes that my ancestors had and and uh i feel connected with that they're with me they're here with us yeah now. and that's such that's such a good way to look at it um i suppose i naively would have grown up in an era where if you heard someone had schizophrenia you would think they're going to be ill for the rest of their lives and they you know they can't really um you know be in the community, you know, and that's that's what we would have been taught that this person is hearing voices and they're going to be like that for the rest of their lives and they need to be kind of, you know, away from um, community. And now I think, I hope that things are kind of shifting and people are recognizing that this is an experience and not, you know, a lifelong thing and that anyone can go through this and experience it. Mm -hmm. um but you you would have got diagnosed at 26 yeah i think it was 26 How, or 27 yeah what would what would your thoughts or opinions have been before you were diagnosed about people with schizophrenia oh i probably um i probably had a lot of the same mainstream yeah confusion and i think i had been a, a little bit exposed to criticisms of psychiatry and a little bit um, exposed to um, 
uh, you know, different view, but I didn't really think about it that much. I mean, there were people with that diagnosis in my, in my family. Uh, my father was uh, diagnosed, probably diagnosed with schizophrenia, although with my father, we, there's a lot we don't know about my father because that's kind of how he lived a lot inside of secrets, inside of secrets, inside of secrets. But yeah, I, um, I didn't really um, know anything about the mental health system. I had no exposure to it. I didn't have any friends who had been in psychiatry. I didn't have I had never gone to a psychiatrist before. I didn't know anybody who was locked up. I didn't know anybody who was so essentially like words like schizophrenia or bipolar just become these kind of scare words. And then you lean on the, uh, the media and the media, it's all, it's all serial killers, horror movies. And then, um, you know, the disease model is a brain, it's a brain disease and it's, ter it's terrible. That's for sure. And what's interesting is that it actually, that only really starts to emerge in the seventies or so that prior to that, I mean, schizophrenia was seen as something that could be treated with psychotherapy that people could be schizophrenic and be in the community or be in the, um, you know, being in families and participating and, and part of things, but then the shift really comes in um, afterwards. And then there's this big shift to biological understanding. I don't, I don't really like the word schizophrenia or schizophrenic or any of that. It's really more of an insult mm -hmm. yeah. than anything else. Um, the whole story really starts where you have these people who for whatever reason are kind of unmanageable. And then you have the pressures of urbanization and factories and the kind of like commodification and the pressures of the economy coming in. And you kind of, you can't just let them sort of be hanging out. They can't just sort of be the so-called village idiot or someone who just sort of shows up and you give them some food and because everything's getting more regulated and more pressured. And so they kind of get all swept up into the asylums, which are really community prisons. They're really, um, holding cells for people and everyone's in there. You have syphilis, Down syndrome, you have a brain injury, um, you, you know, you, you have um, uh, what we would call now manic depression or bipolar schizophrenia or Alzheimer's. All these things are just thrown in together because mm -hmm. these are the un unmanageable people. So it starts with a population control move historically. Then you start to have medical people come in and say, okay, we're going to start dividing these people up and classifying them and, and uh, putting labels on them. And then, and the schizophrenia label has stuck since mm -hmm. that era. People, I mean, dementia, precox, the idea of like early onset dementia was what it was originally called. Um, but it's completely unscientific. There's no basis um, in any kind of like physiology or disease study or anything it really starts as a population control and it really continues these are people that we're afraid of we don't know what to do with them and they're not playing by the rules they're not they don't get up in the morning they don't communicate they talk about weird stuff they don't yeah. seem to take care of themselves they do stuff that's so they kind of drop out of society and then we're puzzled we're afraid of them and then a way of kind of justifying our control measures which are often horrific and an amount to torture we have this whole story of disease and, oh, well, we have to give them these treatments and we have to, um, you know, keep them in hospitals or keep them in sedated and community settings. Yeah, they're, freak, they're, they're freaking people out. We need to keep them away. But yeah, exactly. You, You're scaring us. Yeah. yeah be, before you were diagnosed at 26, had, had this been something that was coming on a long time and you just didn't express it or did something happen? when you were 26? Well, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting question because, um, you know, if there isn't a disease entity, like if you say something like Down syndrome, you can study it under a, a microscope. You can talk with people who have Down syndrome and they're on, they're on a spectrum, but there's similarities mm -hmm. with people. They have certain physiological challenges. They um, uh, maybe behave and so-called perform and so-called function differently, but it's a really, it's a very identifiable, even to the point of like looking at someone's genes and looking, and that's kind of the mentality that people have when they think about schizophrenia. But if it's not that, then what is it? And then we start to realize that it's very blurry. There's, you can put 10 people in a room, all of whom are diagnosed with schizophrenia, and they would present completely differently. It's this giant bucket of, so um, there are people who are so-called functioning normally, who go to work, who 
so-called, you know, have whatever productive measure you want to have, but they have a persistent experience with hearing voices. And so they have been told and they're um, brought in as psychiatric patients and, oh, you know, you need to be on medications. You need to do this. It's a very scary thing. They're surrounded by people who are afraid of it and who see it as a disease. They've bought into that narrative, but there's nothing going on at all except that they hear voices and they're afraid of it. It's not even giving a problem with their lives. So that's one. And then there's all these other examples of all these other kinds of things. So if you ask me like, well, what, what were you going through as a kid that might be part of it? Yeah, there's all kinds of different threads. I would say like having a big imaginative life, being emotionally sensitive. I sometimes would see things. I sometimes would have visions. I sometimes did hear voices. I would go into states where I couldn't talk. I would get really withdrawn. But is that like schizophrenia or is that bullying? Is that growing up in a family where my father and mother are struggling with a lot of emotional difficulties and there's not a lot of emotional support in our family? Is that just who I am as a, so there's lots of different kind of threads. I can look at, you know, different things that are going on. But at 26 um, was really when things came to a head in the most extreme way. And then people say, well, okay, there's this disease and it's kind of like you have this, it's a genetic disease. You have it since you're young and then it kind of incubates, right? And then you have what's called your first onset, your first like flourishing of the seed that's been growing inside of you. And uh, it's typically like 24, 25, 26. And because it's often statistically those ages is when you have your first break or your first episode or your first entrance into psychiatry, people say, aha, that must be because there's this incubation process. I don't, I don't think that at all. I think that actually what's happening is that when you're 25, 26, 27, you're getting hit with huge stresses. Mm. You know, the kinds of stress that I was going through, I'm, I'm financially independent, uh, more or less. I'm trying to, trying to be financially independent. I've left school. I'm trying to find a career. I'm trying to find status. I'm away from my parents. I'm dealing with like, I don't know how to feed myself because that's not a skill that I learned up with. I learned, learned growing up. I, I know how to take care of my body. I'm not sleeping properly. I'm not, there's all these pressures. There's all this trauma and difficulty that I had since I was a kid that are kind of underneath the surface. But now because there's all this stress, they start, start to come out. So I really think that my entrance into psychiatry wasn't like the first episode of an onset of some kind of disease or something. It was really response to life circumstances. And that's one of the things that's most heartbreaking about what gets called schizophrenia. People aren't helped with life circumstances. They have very real problems, very real challenges. And they may be hard for other people to understand. You know, maybe they broke up with their first love and they broke up and which is devastating to them. And because it was so devastating, they go off into this wild story or this wild manic or this wild fantasy realm. And we don't understand necessarily why, but for that person, it was so emotionally devastating, the rejection and the loss and the, but we don't help people to understand whatever their life problems or their life circumstances are. Instead, all that is just set aside and you're given a label. And then now you're inside of a medical clinical framework. And, um, and the question of, are your meds working or not? Is the question you most get asked and should we adjust your meds? And I, sh I should say that I'm not, I'm not anti-meds, but I'm also not anti-alcohol or anti-psychedelic drugs or anti-cannabis. I would say like, these are drugs. If the meds help you, great. If you, if cannabis helps you in your life or you enjoy it, great. If the costs aren't too great, they aren't too heavy a price. If the side effects, if the downside, because we know all drugs have downsides, if they're not too bad, if they're not, if they out, if the benefits outweigh the cost, then it's your choice. But the problem with the psych drugs is that's not what we tell people. We don't tell people this is a tranquilizer. Maybe you want a tranquilizer because someone will say, well, yeah, I could maybe take a tranquilizer for a while for this specific purpose. But if you said to someone, how do you feel about being on tranquilizer the rest of your life? People are going to understandably be yeah. really cautious about that. I mean, there are people who I think make a very reasonable um, decision and a very supported decision and a very um, uh, useful decision 
to stay on meds long term. But usually people are making those decisions without good information, without good options, without good alternatives. Yeah. And, without... and they're at a, a vulnerable stage of their lives and they trust their doctor and they trust exactly. people. And a lot of their family members might think, you know, yeah, you, sh you have to do this. You need to do this. But I suppose my question to you is, did you feel a kind of sense of relief when you got that diagnosis? Was it kind of a like, oh, oh I, I can get treatment now and I can be well again. And oh, yeah. so you, you felt relief. Oh yeah. Mm. oh, yeah. I mean, you have to make sure, make um, clear that when you're talking about whatever mental illness diagnosis you want to talk about, whether it's schizophrenia or whatever, we're talking about extreme suffering often for a long time mm. and so that vulnerability comes in because here's your savior here's this and if it if it works great I, I want people to get help if that's how they get help great but there's this incredible vulnerability to buying into a quick fix to mm. buying into a savior that's going to tell you like oh all your problems are because of this schizophrenia because of this bipolar now everything anytime you have a negative feeling Anytime you have a difficult day, anytime you have a painful emotion, you're going to put it under this uh, under this label, and then that's the solution. And then the the focus becomes the meds. It becomes taking meds, staying on meds, giving the meds long enough to try, adding a new med, switching to a different med, increasing your dosage, and um, it's a it's a kind of madness that the psychiatry system puts on people. But absolutely, to have to be in an institution, a, a wealthy I was at University of California, San Francisco. It's one of the most wealthy, elite, you know, public university colleges in the world. They've got like cutting, so-called cutting edge research, their reputation. They're doing all these tests on me. You feel like, wow, I've, I've like, I'm finally getting help. What you're getting is attention. You know, you're getting someone saying, yeah, your suffering is real and your, your pain is worth, stop everything, let's help you. That's an incredibly powerful moment. When people say, yes, you are suffering, yeah. stop everything. You don't have to work. You just put everything on hold. Let's yeah. help you. Wow. Incredibly relieving, incredibly hopeful, but becomes incredibly damaging. Mm. When then later you realize that these people aren't just trying to help you in a really honest way. They have a certain agenda within a, the, conf the confines of their idea. It's like you're, it's like, imagine that you just broke up with your boyfriend and you're incredibly suffering. And this person says, oh my God, I see you're suffering. Take some time off, come to our sanctuary. We're gonna help you, you're suffering so much. You get to the sanctuary and it's a religious cult and they're indoctrinating you in their religious beliefs. Yeah. And they're telling you that the solution is to follow their, it's kind of like that. I mean, is that really help or is that not? Now, I believe that people should have a menu of options, I'm not against people joining a religion if they want to join a religion I'm not against people getting help in psychiatry but i was not given a menu mm -hmm. i was not no one said hey will let's look at your family like there's a lot going on in your family you left home when you were 15 you're you when you were 19 your family lost your home and your parents broke up so you had nowhere to go back to mm -hmm. you're living in poverty you see no one was talking to me about the actual life experience that I was having. If they, had, if they had said, okay, look, let's give you a sanctuary. Um, let's give you a break. <clears throat> let's, um, let's take your suffering seriously. And then let's talk. Let's really talk about what do you need? Do you need to have a family meeting with your family to try and get on track? Do you need to have a safe place to live? Do you need some planning about your career and about work? And do you need to like maybe go back and, and you know, do you need to have some money that you can take a break from work for a while so you can deal with these stressors in your life? Do you need to learn like some, some skills and tools for dealing with your emotions? Mm. All these powerful pent up, do you need to understand your trauma? Do you need help? There was none of that. No. It was all just like, we're gonna help you. Here's your label and let's get you on the right meds. Mm. Which I think is a, is a, is a terrible, um, it's often very harmful to people that that is what Did happens. you ever find the medication helpful? I, I mean, I, I don't know what you were prescribed, but was there ever a period in your life where you thought, yeah, that was six months where I felt good Absolutely. because of that medication? Or was it a, a, a stage that you were just kind of numb and 
tranquilized so that you didn't really notice. Well, it's kind of like asking, have you ever found getting high helpful? Like, yeah, getting <laughs> getting high can be really nice, you know, yeah. but does it last? What does it mean? Is it really solving your problems? But yeah, like when I first started taking Prozac, before I was uh, forcibly brought into the psychiatric hospital, I thought Prozac was just the greatest thing ever. They had, looking back, they had me on a relatively high dose. And I, I just thought, wow, this is the best cup of coffee I've ever had. I was going in early to work. I was suddenly super productive. And your, and your had, voices, would your voices have stopped then? Um, well, when I was in this upstate, I wasn't having the voices. My voices tended to be down more when I was in a down yeah. state. But I don't, I don't think I was, I wasn't having distressing voices mm. at that time. I may have been having some other voices, but I wasn't really, I was mostly just excited about how good I felt being on the Prozac. Yeah. And people compared Prozac to cocaine. And it definitely was like an orally administered cocaine for me. I was just on the moon. And there's a there's a dynamic between the kind of the high energy states and the drug. Maybe the drug triggers my high energy states. And now pretty, pretty soon I'm like really manic and I'm not sleeping. And I don't really feel like I need much food. But, but yeah, that was wonderful. It was sharp, crystal clear. I can see people being on these drugs and i've talked with many people it's like you know this is my normal state this is the base baseline why can't i get back to this is because you're on a drug yeah. and i learned later that freud um freud who was a um you know, he's the founder of modern psychology i guess you could call him he was he was totally into cocaine in his early career he took co cocaine he thought this was a great and he said that it made me feel normal so yeah. i mean i think there's a lot of complicated things that happen maybe maybe people take a drug and then they kind of it kind of jump starts them like now they're exercising now they're eating food yeah. and then they sort of get so it's a very complicated thing but um but yeah i did have um some very positive experiences with prozac and then it crashed and stopped working yeah. my experiences with antipsychotics were and lithium were were more terrible and scary but a lot of numbing a lot of like um uh, you know, wandering around like in a fog, like brain fog, yeah, and not really knowing, but then feeling like, okay, well, here I am, which is kind of relieving. You know, it's like, oh, okay, well, I don't, I'm not panicking, I'm not mm -hmm. having like crushing anxiety, I'm not hearing voices attacking me as much. They were still around, but I just didn't really care. I mean, I was not because I was numb, I was tranquilized. That can be helpful, mm -hmm. you know. If I haven't slept for five days, give me a tranquilizer, knock me out. I would start with cannabis. I would start with strong CBD. But if push came to shove and I had no other options and I couldn't sleep, and someone said, hey, Will, here's some Seroquel, I'd probably take the Seroquel, to be mm -hmm. honest. If they said, hey, Will, here's a Benzo, I'd probably take it because it's, it's a cost-benefit analysis. But, um, but no, mostly my drug experiences were pretty, pretty negative. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever had good experience or um felt like they were helping me i see i went a bit mad after i had my children and um right. the none of the medications worked at bar mirtazapine because that helped me sleep but other than that i would just go on them for a few months i nothing would happen i'd go back to the doctor she'd give me another one to the stage where i tried every family of um you know drugs prescription drugs um, and none of it worked and I felt okay well I'm obviously unfixable and you know there's nowhere left for me to go really because and then I, I went to this doctor who was apparently you know the best in this in the state um, and she said oh you poor thing you know like we, we'll get this sorted she said one two months we'll get it sorted and it it didn't like the the medication she gave me I don't know what it was probably Prozac or something but um that didn't work and then I really thought okay I'm really screwed now because that was my kind of my last resort um, wow. and that that was a very scary vulnerable place to be um yeah. when you're told like you know you've tried everything really and <laughs> right but you see I think because my issues started after I had children I found out later it's more of a hormonal thing that needs to be treated hormonally and not with you know antidepressants I mean for some women I'm not saying 
if that's for all women but for some women they have found great healing or you know respite in taking antidepressants but i i never did so um right, right. yeah it's a very important it's a very important thing that you say you know some women most women not all women we have to be very careful about generalizing about everybody yeah it's one thing that's for sure people are different mm. I mean, just look at the range of re relationships with alcohol or yeah. the range of relationships with cannabis or the people are so different yeah and what you're describing i mean i've worked with and talked with a number of people i'm thinking about um some friends of mine and she had her first uh baby and yeah, she was she was in an altered state. She was yeah. everyone was really worried about her. She was wandering. She was talking weird stuff. They didn't trust her with the baby. Mm -hmm. It was hard to get breastfeeding started. I mean, it was it was really rough. And um, I talked with them, and I um, they asked me for what I thought, and I just said, look, you know, everybody's afraid, and that's probably not helping, mm -hmm. you know. You have to understand that women kind of losing their minds after childbirth is part of childbirth. Every culture, it's something women sometimes go through. Is it hormonal? Probably for some. Is yeah. it because of the incredible stress of, I mean, I've never given birth to children, obviously, but I was at a birth and I've talked to people and, oh my God, how could such a thing not drive you crazy? I mean, it's an incredible experience. It's but, so and, and as well, for me, you know, there was, the birth and it was a case of they gave me a whole load of um you know uh, the epidural and then oh, they, right. they gave me so much that I didn't get the feeling back in my legs for a long time oh, well wow. I, I say a long time it was probably about 20 minutes longer than usual so she kept coming in the nurse kept pinching my legs and I still had no feeling but oh, so wow. that's time I was convinced that I'd never walk again and that oh, was terrifying. Ter that terrifying and I thought you know what effect is this going to have on the baby like all these drugs terrifying. you know terrifying. So, um yeah that was very scary and it took me a long time to get over that a long time um and I tried to run away from kind of working in this industry for a while I tried to you know get a job um in admin like I'd, I had been doing because I wanted to forget about it so much, but I couldn't go back to the life I used to have. After mm. experiencing what I did in those few years, I couldn't go back mm. to that kind of normal life. And I was so distressed at times that I, I actually thought I would never get to a stage where I could even have a conversation with somebody again, you know, small talk or- Terrifying. I didn't know yeah. what I used to do, you know, with my, facial expressions my mannerisms I forgot like all of that and um it was and I couldn't even explain it to anybody and if I did try they would kind of go you know oh. so it was just so terrifying and um the altered there's the altered state and yeah. there's also the isolation I mean it's hard enough to be in an altered state when wow yeah that's and that you know That'll drive you crazy. I mean, there's yeah. so many things that could go into the post. And and I heard in one of your um podcasts, um, I think it was with Brian Hartnett, um, where where you said, you know, you would prefer to be with somebody in a psychotic episode or you know, distress. You feel so comfortable being in that situation with the person. Um, you feel more comfortable in that situation than you would in a dinner party. <laughs> No. no, it's really. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say always, but it actually is really true. There are some. There are some dinner parties which are pretty, pretty hellish. You know, there's people. I mean, people say that some people, you know, pick up other people's emotions or eyes seem to be really. So yeah, certain kinds of situations, I would much rather. Yeah, I, and, I, I, and I have get along with people who've been mad or are mad, and I kind yeah. of. But it's, but I I don't want to exaggerate that because some people are told pain. Some people are annoying or insufferable or scary or you worry for them they're gonna but that was the main thing with my friends and in, in when my friend was went into this state after she was um after she gave birth is that i just said you know everybody's afraid see if you can bring the fear down of everybody around her see if you can kind of just create a normal as normal as possible look after her but just give it some time mm -hmm. give it some time because i do think that most so-called 
postpartum psychosis and most so-called postpartum depression are self-limiting. They will just get better if you just give them time. Yeah. Can you do it in a safe place? Can you not be surrounded by people that are frightened? And can you avoid interventions like antidepressants or antipsychotics, which may have unpredictable effects, you know? Yeah, um, that's, but, that's but also, so but, I think that, but I'm glad you also got help with the hormonal piece because I mean, God, pregnancy totally does all kinds of things to your hormones. Some women are more vulnerable to that. And it's not something that, that a lot of doctors understand. You might need to go to a naturopath or an acupuncturist or someone who's maybe focused on nutrition or can give Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine or something like that can really help. And I heard your chat with uh, Laura Delano and she would have just briefly brushed on um, her reaction to medication and, and, and the pill as well. And I had a very bad reaction to the pill where I got um, very bad hormonal acne, which lasted for years and years. But, uh, but then other women don't, don't um, seem to, you know, they, they really like taking the pill and it doesn't have any adverse reactions. So um, everyone is different, but how, so you were about 15 years um, on disability, I, I think I saw. And, yeah, I have, and I, at some point I've got to go through the calendar and, and count the years, but it's just, it's just so depressing to think about. And so how did, what was the turning point for you then that you thought? Great question. I mean, I was, I was very grateful for being on a disability check and I work with people all the time getting on disability, but it has a side of it that it's a trap. You know, I was probably on it a little bit longer than I should have been or I wanted to be because I it was so hard to get off of. Getting off of disability was harder than coming off of meds mm -hmm. for me. When I came off of antipsychotics, my doctor just took me off and I went through this hellish two, three weeks where I was, you could say psychotic, I was suicidal, but then I came out the other side. I consider I was very lucky in that sense, but I was also unlucky because I didn't have any support. The doctor didn't tell me what to look out for. There was, I was alone in this, living in this tiny room in a homeless shelter. So it was kind of a nightmare, but that was easier in a sense, because it was done um, than coming off of disability. Disability, it, it really does things to your head. You know, you're capable, all of us are capable of contributing. All of us have value, all of us, all, I don't care what your differences or your limitations, all of us have a role to play, you know, and can contribute to the society, we can. When you're on disability, you get that, that message. And I absolutely needed the money. Mm. I absolutely could not work full time. I actually absolutely was impaired. So I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about, I wasn't disabled. Yes, I was disabled, but there, it's wrapped up with all these different messages about trusting yourself. And, and so for a long time, I thought, well, you know, can I make, I was only, I think my check was like 700 bucks a month. It was very little money. Um, and so a long time I was like, well, am I going to be able to earn this? Because I had started to do some work and get paid and part time and under like the disability limit. Can I really make enough to like save my and have enough money for rent and my food and the different things that I need? I was really scared. And then I, actually, I had a session with a therapist. This is one of the reasons I'm not anti therapy because I have had some good experiences with therapists. Usually not, but I have had some good experiences with therapists. And the therapist and I worked on it and we realized that it wasn't that I was afraid of not having money. It was, I was afraid of being alone because when I first went on disability, I really was alone. I didn't know how to reach out. I didn't have connections. I didn't have people that I could lean on and call in if I needed them. But later I wasn't as alone. I did have people. If, if worse came to worse, I had people that I could crash on their couch. You know, I had people who would, you know, feed me some soup or help me, help me out if I was, and so something shifted because I realized that I was afraid of not having money, but really what I was afraid of was being alone if I couldn't take care of myself. And then I looked at my life and I had built a life that little bit by little bit, I had started to have some connection and support. So that was really the turning point with me. And since then I've I really believe that we need some, like a guaranteed basic income, like a universal basic income in society so that you don't have to be disabled or sick or injured or, or low income, or you just get the money you need. No questions asked because I, there is this thing called the universal declaration of human rights and everybody has the right to housing and food and health and safety in their community. And, 
and we need to provide that to each other and we can afford it. So I'm, I'm not big on the disability system as it's set up. I think it becomes a trap and it becomes like a, people don't get it or they need it and they don't know how to get it. And, um, but it was helpful for me, but I think we need to rethink the entire paradigm and just be taking care of people's basic needs. So were you researching people that you kind of, you know, thought, oh, there's, there is another way that I can heal and it doesn't have to be with these heavy medications and well, my was, it was more like they didn't work. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I was on the antipsychotic and I was so out of it that if you had asked me, is this working or is it not? I, I don't know what I would have said. I probably would have said, yes, it was working, but I was taken off of that antipsychotic. Maybe that was a good thing because I didn't know what was, was best for me. Um, but it really was, my experience was a little bit more like yours. I just tried everything, mm -hmm. I did everything they threw at me. Antidepressants. Okay. Benzos. Okay, this antipsychotic, that antipsychotic. Okay, lithium. Okay, let's go. I would. Try, I tried everything. Group therapy. Day, um, what's it called? Um, uh, day hospital or outpatient. I, I forget the term that they use for it. Um, but I tried everything, and they did want to do electroshock on me. I didn't do electroshock. That was very fortunate. But I really kind of felt like I exhausted um, psychiatry's. Um, and then I started to, I started to sense that I was being scammed. Mm. You know, I was like, these guys, maybe they don't. And then I started to do a little bit of research. Yeah. I started to really, um, but what I did first of all was I, I kind of buried a lot of the experience and I, I buried, I, I was kind of in the closet and, and, and I, I tried to like get my life together. I tried to go back to school, but there was all this that I was burying and eventually just came out. And then I, everything fell apart again. Then I was back in the system again and that's when the psych survivor movement allowed me to really claim all that experience as my identity mm -hmm. and i know that there's many people that leave the identity behind i totally respect that in fact i think it's probably better but for me i did this really weird thing where i said yeah i do have a schizophrenia diagnosis come and listen to me and pay me you know yeah i do i i learned a lot about being in support groups come and listen to me and pay me and I'll help you with your family. So I turned it around into a way to have a vocation. And um, I look back, I'm like, how, how did that happen? But so you mean you, you kept that kind of terminology instead of, you know, leaving it behind and not speaking of that diagnosis? Again, or what? I, 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 I reclaimed that time of my life. Yeah, okay. Changed the whole framework of understanding. I just chucked psychiatry out the window. Yeah. But I but I did say, yeah, I did go through this and I, I broke the stigma. Like my website, like the first thing you diagnose with schizophrenia, here's my hospital experience. I have madness radio. So I found that that was, and maybe that's just my personality. I've always like, if something's scary, I'll just kind of go towards it sometimes. I'll either, that's not entirely true, I'll either collapse and hide. For a long time but then eventually i'll like go towards it and that has that's maybe a quality i learned from my mom and my dad and i learned to just like because i couldn't i couldn't run away from that history i couldn't just be a counselor who's just like a counselor and i had to really claim um that part of who i was yeah. and there there are people that move on and they never talk about the fact that they were in the mental hospital that's great for me it became like the thing i talk about a lot mm -hmm. And it's working for me. Sometimes I think I'm focused on it too much. I want to like you know, yeah. branch out a little bit with the. No, I, I, I think it's I think it's great that you do that. I there would be a lot of things that I would not ever talk about, but I think our experiences oh, yeah. are so different. And then there's still a lot of because there's oh, yeah. you know children involved in in my experiences. Um, it's uh, I, I wouldn't do it. I, I, it's too frightening to even go there. Right. Um, there's a lot of things there's a lot of things i don't talk about yeah but can i ask you what what your yeah. can i ask what it's like to hear voices like what kind of things would like the voices, voices yeah. say and um it, like do you feel like sometimes you're paralyzed by this and they have control over your body and stuff like that yeah that's i don't i don't know if i like the word voices because when a demon comes into your life grabs the steering wheel. Is that a voice? Well, yeah, the demon has a voice, but there's so much more going on. It's a presence. It's like a, mm. 
you know, if the demon takes over your body and you're frozen, is that a voice or is that possession or so these experiences are are way beyond just putting everything in a box of auditory hallucinations. Um, when I went into the hospital for the first time, I was hearing a very aggressive voice telling me just like the worst things about myself, using secrets, using using things that had happened to me that I felt really ashamed about, using them against me, telling me to kill myself, telling me it's over, you ruined it, you know, you destroyed it, you lost this job, you lost this partnership, you lost this community, you screwed up your life, it's over. Screaming, yelling at me, and there was no space for my own thinking, there was no space, and yeah, I would sometimes I would get totally frozen, I would get cat, what gets called catatonic, and people will say, oh, that's a, like the person is gone. They're like in a really low energy place. No, I was there. and I was in a high energy state. I was just frozen. Mm-hmm. But it was like coming at me. And I was very sensitive to everything around me. And it took me quite some time to realize, because when, when you're in the hospital, they just want to know, are you hearing voices? They don't ask you like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. They don't start exploring and working with it. It's just, it's a medication. It's like taking your temperature. It's taking a bar, yeah. Yeah, they just tick, they just check the box. They tick the box. Um, later, I learned it was my father's voice. Mm. And one of the voices I hear. Now I have psychiatry's voice. Mm. You know, I have a psychiatrist's voice in my head. These voices come very, very rarely. The negative voices come very rarely. I also have like a, a demon whispering voice that comes more frequently and it comes interpersonally. It'll tell people, it'll tell me not to trust people. It'll tell me that the person I'm with is trying to hurt me. I need to get away from them, that I'm in danger. And I understand that these are protector voices that are related to trauma, but they're often very confused about what the source of the danger is. Um, But mostly now I have developed, um, it's very personal to me. There's a lot that I don't talk about, but I communicate with spirits. I communicate with ancestor spirits. And they show up in uh, something that'll pop into my head. Very occasionally, I'll hear something outside of my head, or I'll hear whispering, or I'll hear um, something that sounds like a conversation, and it'll be a positive, reassuring thing. But mostly, it's something that's outside of me that comes into my head that I hear in my head, and it's supporting me. Sometimes it's a feeling. Sometimes it's a presence. Like you know, you're you're at home. Your parents are there, you feel safe. Often that wasn't safe for me, I, I get that. But there is the feeling of like, ah, I'm with my ancestors. Ah, I'm with these protectors. People use lots of like guardian spirits. People sometimes say angels, sometimes, you know, whatever you would want you to talk, Would you talk back to them then? When? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, for me, a lot of it is um, a sense of awe, mm-hmm. like I'm getting a really strong message I'm just really grateful. So my talking back is gratitude. But sometimes there's wrestling or struggling with the voice. One of the negative experiences that I often have is is suicidal feelings. Maybe not often, but let's see, the last time I had suicidal feelings, three weeks ago, two weeks ago. Um, And that will come with a voice. Um, And there's a spectrum, like a voice, it's not me. It comes from outside. It intrudes and I can't control it. But then there's also this spectrum of like my own self-talk. It's like my self-talk that's run amok. I think these are very complicated Mm -hmm. questions, but I have, I get suicidal, there's a voice coming in and then I'll say, you know, F you, I don't want to die. What needs to change? Don't don't tell me to kill myself. That's not helpful. I know you're here to help me. What's helpful? And then they, then I'll have, I'll start to wrestle or to struggle with the voice. And it's very similar to how I work with the inner critic, which is not pathologized or should should not be pathologized. None of this should be pathologized. But it's very common for people to have strong inner critics. And then again, that spectrum, the inner critic can just take on a life of its own. It's like you have a demon. A lot of people talk about this. And yet we somehow put up a wall, the voices over here, the inner critic. But talking back to your inner critic, talking back to that bullying voice, standing up to it, sometimes compassionately, like, hey, I know you're here for a reason. I know you don't want me to just hide. I know you're not just telling me to be alone. You want to protect me. 
yelling at me isn't the way to do it, but I, I appreciate you want to protect me. What is really the message here? Sometimes that's the way to go. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm just F you, get out of my head, turn up the yeah. music I'm listening to, scream at it in the car. I, I do a lot of talking to voices in, in my car. Um, and uh, I also talk to memories. I talk to parts of my, so I have this very, I mean, this is one of the reasons that I'm so interested in studying Jung, because Jung said that what gets called schizophrenia or what gets called psychosis or what gets called mediumship, it's all the same thing. We're all just dealing with the human psyche, which has these different parts. Mm. People typically talk about their conscience. It's a very common experience to be going along and then, oh, my conscience is telling me. Or people say, oh, I'm going along and, and my gut is, those are parts of you. They're both you, but they're also kind of distinct. I think Jung understood that, you know, creating dialogues and interaction and hosting, hosting Zoom calls with the different parts of you is a really useful, and that's kind of how I live. And yeah, sometimes those are autonomous voices. Sometimes I interact with demons. Sometimes I don't know if demon is the right word, but they certainly feel like these terrifying, monstrous, threatening. And, and would you be able to put that back to a, a time where you're feeling distressed about something or worried about something? Will you always try and find the reason that this has, and will you find, always. will you find it? Yeah. They, it's, it's, I think that's always true. I mean, people don't hear voices, people in situations hear voices. You want to understand your voices, understand the person and the situation, the history, the buildup, the context. But the problem is if I go through life, I go into a difficult conversation around work, I get into this. At the moment, I'm like, oh, everything's fine. It's fine. I'm just having this conversation. But really what's happening is I'm dissociating. I'm not in touch with the fact that this conversation is really affecting me emotionally. Later, I start to have strong emotions. I start to have a hearing voices experience and I don't remember. And so I have to like dialogue with the voice. I have to really study my experience. I have to sit with myself, slow the mental speed down, bring up the emotions. And then I'm like, oh, no wonder I'm frightened, you know, right now. No wonder I'm on a lot of stress. Remember that experience I had around my work, a conflict or someone I was meeting with. And then I start to put, but I also want to say I, I'm not a reductionist. I don't think that voices just come from life circumstances or trauma. I think that sometimes you get ancestral voices. I think sometimes people hear other people's voices. I think there's a mediumship. I think that there, I interviewed a, a, a wonderful um, poet on Madness Radio who was diagnosed and was on all these meds. She's a medium. She connects with spirits. And she gets information and you can say, okay, well, that's what she says. That's your metaphysics. Actually, she gets um, uh, asked by police departments to um, track down missing people. Okay. I have a friend who had a missing person and um, I connected her with this, this person who's a medium and she brought back meaningful information that really helped that person. So this is way more mysterious than just you have a trauma, it causes a voice. You know, also, I think we, we should say that, you know, there are physiological, like you mentioned, hormone imbalances. Yeah. People, if you have vitamin D deficiency and you go into depression or you have chemical yeah. exposure, you know, or steroid, you take a steroid and you have a side effect from a steroid. Yeah. So it's and I, I feel like a lot of times people, when they start taking prescription medication, it will bring on stuff like that, voices yeah. and psychosis, whereas That's they right. might have started out feeling depressed and then they start taking these medications and things get yeah. a lot worse um, when there's it comes a whole, to there's a whole subset of people out there who never had a so-called psychotic experience until after taking psychiatric medications and it's almost yeah. almost certainly that it's the psychiatric medications that are playing a big role not always but it's a big it's not researched oh. it's not talked about i wanted to ask you what you thought about terms like end the stigma and it's okay not to be okay and um, just talk to somebody go to your doctor and um, because i have my own thoughts about those kind of terms yeah. and i i kind of wanted to ask you what you thought about it 
it's a little bit complicated because like if someone says to me like what is um it's okay to to not be okay that's a that's what big one you hear these days mm. that could that could be really helpful mm. to have a friend say like hey it's okay to not be okay let's just go for a walk and you don't have to talk and you know you can be down we don't have to be like up and happy and partying all the time where you know um it could be a really great message so it's it's complicated it's like what's the relationship to it what's the individual's experience someone comes in and says hey will i was diagnosed with bipolar i'm really glad that i'm on these meds i'm not going to argue with them that's their experience yeah i'm going to be curious to find out what it means for them i'm going to be curious about what they have learned about the risks and the benefits but i think we have to follow the money on a lot of this um mental health care in the united states and around the world the problem with mental health care is often framed as access to treatment. So think about that. If you're selling a product of your drug, how different is that marketing the drug? How different is that from removing the barriers from access to treatment? It's the same, like when we put healthcare in a profit-driven um, context, we completely pervert the incentives. I mean, you wanna have more disease. If you're selling treatments of disease, you wanna have more disease. If your consumers are people with symptoms who are chronic, you want them to be people with symptoms who are chronic because then you don't lose your consumers because they don't get better. There's, it's a very perverse incentive structure, which is what capitalism creates. I and mean, we can talk about that because I think a lot of what is called mental health problems are really being driven by a very materialist, consumer, exploitive, um, unequal society. But I would say follow the money on these kinds of things. I, I wouldn't say go headlong into attacking people who are sharing memes on the internet we don't you don't want to come across as like a, as as dogmatic as psychiatry you know i think we really owe people spaces for critical thinking and for listening because fundamentally that's what psychiatry didn't allow me but the anti-stigma campaigns also there there's um research that shows that um if you if you say there shouldn't be stigma around mental illness because it's a physical disease like any other physical disease that actually can make things worse Yeah, because it's sort of like us and them and this person's broken and they're going to be a monster and you know but there you know there are i'm sure many contexts i've seen it too where people thinking in a disease framework can be alleviating it can be help bring the fear down it can open some doors but fundamentally the campaigns that you're talking about I would follow the money, you know, follow who's actually benefiting from this, who's been excluded from the conversation. <clears throat> I have to say, you know, I was for years, it's like mental health problem, see your doctor get treatment. And of course, that's a huge problem because it's not saying mental health problem, see your doctor get treatment, but keep in mind, you might, it might get worse because of that, <laughs> leaving out the, the crucial ingredient of informed consent. But I was in, I was in New York, uh, this was like pre-COVID, and I saw these ads and I thought, oh, brother, it's, it's another mental health ad that's pulling people into psychiatric consumerism, right? And it was, it was if, if your coworker or your neighbor seems to be having some problems, don't be afraid to just talk to them. That was the whole ad. I was like, actually, I kind of I like that. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a positive message. Now, the people who are who are doing the talking are probably saturated with well maybe you should go to the doctor so it might still be a conveyor belt to the doctor but do we need public education around people are suffering we can help each other yes we do we need public education about domestic violence intimate partner violence the the harms that come from racism and homophobia and transphobia and we education about we need to come together because we can help prevent suicidal feelings. We can help prevent stress. We can help people. We can teach each other about sleep deprivation. We can teach each other about talking about your, your emotions with each other. We don't have to go to a doctor or a therapist. We can learn how to, the just companionship. Yeah. Just sharing. And, and not be afraid being in the presence of somebody that is experiencing high levels of distress. And um, I won't keep you too much longer, but I just want to know have you got some kind of a toolkit that you rely on to to stay kind of um in a space where you're comfortable with um I, you know like for me i think um alcohol 
it's something that significantly impacts my emotional well-being. Um, so I try not to um, drink alcohol because uh, it's great, you know, on, on the day, but it's just that next day. And it used to be fine, you know, when I was younger. Um, yeah. It used to be fun. And then it got to a stage where it stopped being fun. And the next day, I just feel like the world is closing in on me. Oh yeah. So I'm I'm curious to know what kind of things that you have in place where you feel like okay I need to do this for my well-being. Yeah. And I need to stay away from this for my well-being. Oh yeah. It's a, it's a great question and there's there's a lot of a lot of ways to answer that. There's a lot of different things I could talk about. But I also think that um like self-care is really often about how I express my respect and my love and my caring for myself. If I'm really tight with like, oh my God, I'm afraid of going into the hospital. I better not drink. I better get to bed by 1030. I better, you know, do my yoga. That kind of control tightness, you know, almost like punitive discipline itself becomes a problem. So I think it the best is where I'm very forgiving. Like, oh, okay, I ate some junk food today. Well, I'm going to pay for that, but it's okay. You know, I enjoyed it and it's okay to, so having like a really sort of softer, hold on myself when I'm using my tools or having my guidelines because my critic will just totally take over like oh you screwed up you did this you you know and I have to be really that's the really the biggest thing is forgiveness and compassion in my own which takes time you have to be surrounded by other people to give it to you you have to work on it. you have to work through your trauma and and um but there's some there's some very practical guidelines like I wish I could just drink some wine with my friends you know, I just can't, I, I can't even drink a half. I mean, I think, is it my liver? Is it my, I'm, I'm physiologically sick. It's oh, not just really? emotional. I'm very, I get very physiologically sick. Yeah. I don't know what that is, but um, cannabis, um, woof, I used to love cannabis, but then I did not love cannabis. It makes <laughs> me super paranoid, super crazy. Cannabis hangs around in your system. Like if people say, oh, well, you know, I did some cannabis four days ago. I'm fine now. Uh, that's fat soluble substance. It's still, <laughs> your, it's still in your brain cells. It doesn't give it a month, then see how you feel. Yeah. You know, I wish I could do cannabis. I wish I could do all these different kinds of drugs. I'm just a really sensitive person. And yeah. I've learned that, you know, physical activity, um, walking, the, the more I um, kind of learn and the more I see about the world, I can't, I can't um, emphasize enough how great walking is just having a routine where you're walking like an hour hour and a half every day in chinese medicine it's, it's one of the most valuable things that you can do sleep and walking i try and walk regularly it really really um really helps me i used to um i used to like be i would go through periods where i would travel a lot and i would go through periods where i didn't i'm like oh i really need to travel i feel so much better when i'm traveling i was like wait a second when I'm traveling, I'm walking all the time because I'm like walking around cities and maybe I need to walk more. So those are those are big ones. Um, I just have a ton of tools. I'm, I'm super um, well resourced. I, I mean, I teach about it. I have all kinds of different things. Um, a lot of what I'm doing is asking myself what emotion is going on here because mm. I can get very numb and dissociated. And I had an experience. I was talking with someone just yesterday. I, I was feeling so achy. I felt like I just, my whole body was just like out of sorts, right? And people say, oh, that's inflammation. So I said, okay, that's inflammation. And then I started to talk. I started to, and I realized, you know, I'm afraid. I have some emotions going on. And then under the fear was some sadness. And then I was found myself crying. And lo and behold, the physical symptoms went down. I felt less, felt less of that inflammation. I find a lot of what I'm doing is I'm tracking, um, what emotion might be going on that I'm missing and how to express it or even better get connection around it. I'm very lucky. I have a, a whole group of friends that I can call, you know, anytime and they will do their best to be there. It's redundant. Like one's not available. So I have another that's available and just having that connection mm. is a total lifesaver. I've learned a lot about food. Like I don't eat gluten. I'm allergic to dairy. I'm not telling people that that's going to solve your problem, but you might want to experiment. Yeah, and I heard your um, podcast with the, the vegan, the vegan one, and oh, yeah, really yeah, good, yeah. yeah, where you talk about um, 
gluten and how it's, you know, in inflammation and how that can affect your gut, which, which affects your brain. And um, it's really interesting. And I suppose just knowing that these kind of thoughts um, a lot of the time are fleeting and you don't have to run and get a drink or, you know, get some chocolate or you can just sit and be with that sometimes yeah. really difficult emotion and um and just be with it and, and try and I mean we're very complex aren't we <laughs> it's it's a work in progress um but I yeah I, I'm really grateful that you um that you came to have a chat with me today Will and it just it flew by I, like I could stay chatting to you for hours um it's, yeah. you're so interesting and um I'm so grateful that you share your story as well I think that's really important and it's thank helped you. me, you know, and, and I think um, it'll help many others as well. So thank you. Well, that's sweet. Thank you for thank you for giving uh, me a little bit of Ireland yeah. today. Really, I, I, it's wonderful. Lots of wonderful people in that. Well, you'll have Ireland. to come over, and we'll go to that uh, monument in Middleton, and uh, yes. we, we can get a picture there. Yeah, Choctaw, yeah. Choctaw Irish uh, friendship and yeah. solidarity around the famine. Yeah, the colon colonial imposed famine. Yeah, so yeah, yeah wonderful. Thank you, thank you All very right. much. Um, Thanks, Will. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you soon. Bye.